Well, Lord, thank you for this crew. Um, thank you for this word. What an amazing, what an amazing word this is. Thank you for your word and that your word, by through faith and the power of your Holy Spirit, takes us to the Word made flesh, Jesus Himself, fully God, fully man. Who it almost boggles the imagination, but who in the fullness of time stepped into our world to save us, and that's why we're here. Um, Lord, I just uh, come to you with a cataclysm of a concatenation of different emotions tonight, and um, it's been a day. And Lord, we just I just pray that you would focus us in on your word, that you would uh, fill us with your spirit, that you would fix our eyes on Jesus, and that you would save and sanctify for your glory. Help us, Lord. Give light as your, as your word is unfolded. Uh, I pray that tonight would be fun. Uh, I pray that it would be fun and that we would enjoy you and enjoy each other and enjoy your word and the wonderful news that it gives us. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh, you didn't have to do that. I felt like you were waiting. I'm like, come on. Come on in. You're so polite. All right, we're in, y'all, we're in Romans 8, 25, 26 and following. I'm, you know, confession, I, I, for a whole variety of reasons, I'm just, it's a thick week. I just didn't, I did not print out notes for y'all. We're not singing a hymn. We could sing a hymn later if we have time and we want to, but it'll have to be something we all agree on. Kumbaya. Yeah. Amazing grace, kumbaya. Um, I'm trying to, I tried to, it's a thick week and so I was just proud of myself for getting through this, but also, um, trying to strip down. I feel like, I feel like I've been cramming material in and I just want to strip a little bit, leave a little, try to leave a little more time for, you know, not to finish right, you know, not to lecture the whole time and maybe, so anyway, I tried to strip down and notes are much shorter tonight and, and so, uh, yeah, we'll see how it goes, but no notes for you today. I'm sorry. Sorry about that. Uh, but hopefully you have your Bible at least and we're in Romans eight twenty six through, well, I actually made it through um, the rest of the end of the chapter. We had kind of planned on two, two weeks for, to get us through, but if we can do it this week, we will. We won't push it. So um, I'm calling tonight God's invincible and unlosable love. What a great, what a great theme to jump into. God's invincible and unlosable love. This is one of my favorite passages because it's awesome, but also my grandfather Moms, Mia's dad loved this passage. He's in glory now with the Lord. I think about him all the time. I have pictures of him in various places. He was a trial lawyer. He would always say, trial lawyers are born, not made. And uh, the stories of him in, in the courtroom alone are legion. Fought in, fought in World War II. Wanted to go where the action was the hottest. Like, total fighter. Little Napoleon. Was, yeah, went to Rice. But he, uh, he, loved, he loved this section in particular. He loved reading about how God has chosen us and how he... The work's as good as done because, um, because of our, the security of our salvation in Christ. And he loved, we'll get to this, what, what he called the ordo salutis, which is a theological term for some of the stuff we get, we'll get into tonight. So such a rich passage. Let's jump in. Um, let me just read it. I always forget I need to read the passage first. But let me just read the whole passage. Romans 8, starting in verse 26. Hopefully you've got it open. So Paul continues and he says, he's been talking about hope and he says in verse 26, likewise, the spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the spirit because the spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. 
Verse 28, famous verse. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according, are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, I thought we would just get to that, and that would be it tonight, but I just... I just kept moving, to, you know, in the, in the lesson prep today, and um, let's just keep reading. We'll see if we get here. Verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that? who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. I mean, how good is that passage? I really had a very, very, very light touch to those last eight verses, so uh, we will... Yeah, Joe's going to take over. Yeah, probably. So, But even if we get through them, we may just want to press more into him next week, and we'll just see how that goes. But let's, let's jump into verse 26. So Paul says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. And then he goes on to talk about how he helps us. And, you know, why start with likewise? I will say this. I, I literally just started, started pressing into the text and, and writing and thinking and, and prayer. And I, I didn't even, this is a full confession on, on tape, I didn't even turn to any commentaries. And I've maybe done that once before, but... Um, and there's a certain beauty in that sometimes. Um, I never, I never like to turn to him at first, but, um, I literally, before y'all got here, just looked briefly at, I brought one, Tim Keller. And, and so I just looked at likewise and I thought, okay, well, why, you know, why, why does he say likewise? What's he referring to? He's obviously continuing in a train of thought and, um, and he's talking about the spirit. And does anyone have any thoughts about why he says, likewise, the spirit helps us in our weakness. What's he, what's he picking up? there from what, what connect, what's it connecting to yeah verse 25 what, Jordan what are you going to say and then mom I was going to this is just off of my head yeah um, I was looking back at, at 16 yeah exactly that's what I did because that talks about the action of the spirit that's what I, witness. That's so what I like, did and then 25, 26 he's saying likewise the spirit helps us in our weakness yeah. I, that's exactly what I did I I said, you know, what's Paul referring to? I think he may be going back to the stuff before verse 18. The Spirit is life, um, helping us with our witness, um, the, the Spirit being the one who is the Spirit of adoption, who assures us that we're children of God, who makes us alive in Christ. You know, So in other words, he's the passage we looked at last week, 18 through, um, 18 through 25, it kind of seems like you know, he's talked about that, but that's really kind of its own discrete section where he's talking about the creation groaning 
in, in its bondage waiting for the redemption of the sons of men, right? So, hey, hey, our redemption is more than just our redemption. Christ secured the redemption of, and the renewal of all things. But then it seems like Paul does this a lot. He's going, likewise, the Spirit. So he picks up on the Spirit again, and he's going back from before that section and saying, uh, hey, the Spirit is life. And he's saying, in addition, so the Spirit is the sign of our belonging to God, the one by whom we cry, Abba, verse 15, right? Um, likewise, he'll, he'll pick up. It seems like he may be picking up again in verse 26 uh, after he's had this discursus on, um, on creation groaning and the redemption of all things. And then he says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. He helps us to pray, is what he goes on to say. Mom, what were you? So that might be true. Keller said something different. I literally just turned for five seconds to one more commentator. He says something different. He says what mom just kind of referenced, which is he just goes to 25 and goes, hey, hope helps us. Okay, hope helps us. It helps us to, to, uh, to have hope in the promises of God that we don't see, to wait for him with patience. And, he might, and maybe he's saying, like that, like hope helps us, the Spirit helps us. So uh, maybe so. And he could be doing both. What, what were you going to say, Mom? Well, that was what I was Okay, all right. So, yeah, if I dug into the high-powered commentaries, and if you did, we'd have a better idea. But that's, I think that you can have, sometimes you can have more than one answer to something like this, and he could be doing both or, you know, other things too, or none of those. So, um, so we do know that the Spirit is a sign of our belonging to God. You know, so we talked a couple weeks ago just about how, how do you know that someone's a believer? How do you know you're a believer? It's, you have the Spirit of God living inside of you, a new creation. You cannot, if you're, you cannot have the spirit living inside of you and not be a new creation. And you can't be a new creation without the spirit living inside of you, you know? Um, and if the spirit indeed is living in you, you will bear fruit to, to varying degrees. You will bear fruit. Um, the spirit is the, the sap of God, as it were, to, to uh, I, I don't want to, I don't want to sound, I'm using an illustration. I don't want to sound um, um, too, too cavalier, but um, so the Spirit, he's the mark of a Christian. He shows us that we are gods. Um, by him we cry, Abba. We call God the Father, Dad. But likewise, Paul says, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. He helps us to pray, right? So in sum, the Spirit in us means we are God's children and is himself the Spirit of our adoption by the Father. Not only that, Paul says, likewise, he also helps us pray and do other things we just cannot do by ourselves because we're weak and sinful children. We need help. And so the helper, the spirit, helps us. Hey, can I yeah, ask of course. I've got more room. I don't, I'm going to try to stop cramming. I've got more room tonight. So, yeah. Verse 26 at the end, it says, um, But the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Mm-hmm. Do you think those groanings are, refer to the groanings from the spirit or for, for, for our groanings too deep? For spirit. The, the spirit. I do. Okay. Yeah. Good question. Yeah, so that's the next, that's the last part of the verse and the next bit there. The Spirit intercedes for us. Um, not only does he help us pray, he, he prays for us. He intercedes for us. Um, and actually, so does Jesus, the Son, in, in verse 34b at the end of verse 34. Uh, you, you know, and I think that's something that Christians can be more familiar with. I certainly think all the time about Jesus as our intercessor. That's one of the things he's doing at the right hand of the Father is interceding for you. He's interceding for the saints. He's, he's, he's a... He's an in-between between us and the Father that's, that's petitioning for us. He's advocating for us. But the Spirit is too. And of course, and we're going to get into this in a second. I want to, I want to stop here and get into this doctrine that has various names. But, so Jesus intercedes for you. He intercedes for the saints, but so does the Spirit. So which one? Both, right? So this, uh, and it's such an encouraging doctrine. Uh, 
And we'll talk about, just next, I'll talk about the groanings. We'll just dig into that language just a teeny bit. Um, but this doctrine of the Spirit and the Son doing the same thing, they're both interceding for us with groanings too deep for words, um, is, is the doctrine of, it's referred to variously, mutual indwelling. Uh, it's kind of what some of this touches on. Um, it also has, um, uh, the, the Greek name is perichoresis, and the Latin name is circumincessio, or circumincession. Um, but mutual indwelling. So the idea that the Trinity is always, uh, the other two persons are always dwelling within, the, within that third person. And, and, so the, the, what, and also, they're always doing the same thing. They're always acting in concert. They're never at odds. Which is one of the mysteries of, if I, if I may say so, like it's one of the mysteries of the cross, right? Where Jesus was abandoned by the Father. I, that's a mystery in so many ways. But the, the whole, God in his, in his three-personedness and in his unity as one, he's one being. Not, not a creature, but he's, he's one necessary being, but he's, he's tri-personal. He's a community. He's a family. He's, that's the reason we are personal. That's the reason solitary confinement is the worst, because we're made in his image, and we, we are made for fellowship, because God in himself is a fellowship. And whatever the Spirit is doing, the Son and the Father are doing. Whatever the Father is doing, the, the Son and the Spirit are doing. Whatever the Son is doing, the Father and the Spirit are doing. They're always acting in concert. And which you see a lot of that in the life of Jesus, when, he, um, when he's on the earth, and he's like, I never do anything unless I hear the Father. Unless I see the Father doing it. I never say anything unless I see the Father, unless I hear the Father saying it. Right? And, um, and, yeah, go ahead. Do you think that because Jesus came to role model for us, uh, what man is supposed to look like? Do we have that capability? I was praying about that today. I've long thought yes, and I was asking the Lord just in my own personal prayers. Not for, it wasn't actually for this lecture. It was just, it was just for me, just, yeah, Lord, is that, is that something that's just for Jesus, or is that a model? You know, is it, is it you know, prescriptive, or is it descriptive, right? Um, if it's prescriptive, it's for us. If it's descriptive, it's just describing what he did, but it's not necessarily how, how we should live. I tend to lean toward prescriptive. I tend to lean toward Jesus was the perfect human, and he was the second Adam. He was humanity as it should be, as well as, hey, nobody's asking anybody here to be fully God. We, we won't be. We, we don't want to be. But he was also modeling the full and the perfect humanity in his full dependence on the Father. And, and I think that, that the way that looks is you're constantly in touch by the, by the Spirit. And you're constantly in a, in a perfect humanity, you know, not even drawing on his divinity in that sense, if I can say that, in that he was, as the perfect human, without sin, showing us that, hey, we don't want to be doing anything or saying anything on our own. And the Spirit being indwelled by the Spirit and led by the Spirit and keeping in step with the Spirit is how we, is how we draw on the Father. It's how we know the Father. It's how we know what He's saying and what He's doing in order to emulate Him as His sons and daughters, right? So, and learning how to hear His voice. I mean, right. I, I don't think we're encouraged to do that, you know, as and, much as we should be. And Jesus said, my sheep know my voice, right? Yeah. And so and He knew yeah, the Father's voice, and we're supposed to know His. Know it. No, no. have to be... That's right. You have to train your ear to yeah. hear it. And, that, and, that, and like you, you slapped your, you know, for, the, for those that are listening, you can't, they can't see what you just did. You just, you just hit your, in a respectful way, you just put your hand on your Bible. How, do you, how can you possibly know God's will for your life, what he's saying and doing if you don't know? He's given, people will I wish I just knew what God wanted. Man, spend time. spend time in the word. He's given you this precious and perfect word. Um, it's the perfect, you know, um, 
rule for faith and life, and and it's living. It's not just a. It's not a dead letter. It's living. If if indeed we are alive in the spirit and we are reading with with eyes of faith in community in the community of the church, um, this is this is him speaking to us and taking us to his son Jesus and filling us with the spirit. So, um, so yeah, I I do think that's that's my short answer. Um, but all I'd say. I think this, the fact that the Spirit intercedes for us and Jesus, later Paul tells us in verse 34 that Jesus does too, it's, it's not, it's simply touching on, this isn't, you know, the time to talk in depth about the doctrine of mutual indwelling, but, it, but that doctrine of God, the three persons of God always acting in concert can help us understand something like this, and it's a beautiful doctrine. Do you think the Spirit was praying for Jesus when he was on the cross? Because the Father definitely never thought about it that way. had to just remove himself. Yeah. But... If the Spirit is constantly interceding, that thought just came to me. I never mm-hmm. thought of that before. I mean, I would lean toward yes, but that's a great. I've never had that thought before. Mm-hmm. Stupidly, it's a great thought. What does anybody? Does anybody else want to venture on that? I mean, we're just no. we're just conjecturing. You'd say no because the Father because abandoned him and alone. he's alone. Yeah. yeah, it's true. Otherwise, he would reach out to the Spirit and say, "Man." True, a true, a true mystery, yeah. and yeah, you know, and I think that's at the heart of why the cosmos was rupturing when when Jesus was being abandoned on the cross. But the very word of God, in whom all things hold together. So, okay, let's keep moving. But um, that's that beautiful doctrine of perichoresis, circumcision, or mutual indwelling. Um, now he says, with groanings too deep for words, the Spirit intercedes for us. Um, so comforting to me. Um, and I just wrote, how is this possible that God should pray for us in this profound and travailing way? And it's because of Jesus, right? It's because, it's because of all that Jesus has done for us, that we're represented in Christ, that the Spirit can travail for us like this. Um, and, yeah, and to think that the Helper, God himself, is doing this. He's, he's, he's interceding for us with groans who do for words. Um, the, the New English translation express, um, translates groaning city for words as inexpressible. So in... in inexpressible groanings. So instead of too deep for words, which it does mean, they use the word inexpressible. So beyond words, you can't even, it's too deep. Inexpressible groanings. And that word groanings is indeed a great translation. It means, and this is from a, a high power Greek dictionary, the word groanings in the Greek means an involuntary expression of great concern or stress. So just this deep, guttural, beyond words groaning. He's, he's praying for us. And so just when you're going through a stressful situation, when you feel abandoned, if, if you're in Christ and you're a new creation, you are not. If you are suffering, just to take heart with this truth, to know that like the spirit of the living God, who is God himself fully, Jesus, the son of God, who is fully God, they are interceding for you. And the spirit is groaning. He's, he's interceding for you with groans that are inexpressible, <laughs> like birth pains almost, right? So deeply does he care. Um, it's, it, it conveys a deep love for us too. Deep love. Deep love. And, and he's able, the God is able to love us as, as full of integrity and justice as he is, and un, is unable to countenance sin because Jesus took our place. He became the, the curse for us so that, so that God can see Jesus covering us and he can, he can love us in that way. So wonderful. And make us more like Jesus through through our and Paul's going to get to this in a couple of verses, but through our sufferings, God's using He's turning all these things to good, and that's a, I'm sure a huge part of what the Spirit's praying that through sin, through suffering, through privation, through pain, through all the things that we encounter, the Spirit is groaning 
praying for us in groans too deep for words so that, so that what would be produced in us is Jesus. More of Jesus, more of Jesus, right? The Lord would use it like a furnace. Um, verse 27, verse 27, and he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. God alone knows God. This is that great truth that God alone knows God and whomever God chooses to reveal himself to and no one else. You can't know God by going to God, by trying to get to God on your own steam. Yeah. For us to know God, God must reveal himself to us. Uh, we cannot get to him on our own steam. You think about Babel, the Tower of Babel, and that's just a great picture of people trying, trying to reach the heavens on their own, trying to get to God on their own, uh, versus you know, the next chapter, he reveals himself to Abram in the land of Ur. He was worshiping, no doubt, the moon god Nana. But God came and revealed. He came down and revealed himself to this man. And Abram responded in faith. And then you think about, of course, that pushes us toward the ultimate way that God has revealed himself to us is how? The perfect way. How does God perfectly reveal himself to us? To Jesus. To Jesus, the incarnation. And what is that but a picture of God literally coming down? Coming he came down. down. We can't climb a ladder up to God. He, as it were, took a ladder and came down to us. That's how it has to work for us to know God because of our finiteness, but mainly because of our sin and our, and our evil um, in, in Adam. Um, so I want you all to turn. Somebody turn with, you can all turn, but somebody read Matthew eleven twenty five through 27. This is kind of a showcase text for this. Matthew eleven twenty five 25 through 27. 25. Yes, sir, Matthew. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal them. Pretty clear. Clear as vodka. You know, no one knows the Father but the Son, and yeah, anyone to whom this, the Son chooses to reveal the Father to, and no one else, by the way, no one else. Um, now, lest we think God is playing hard to get, let's note two things: who is telling us these words? Who's speaking these words that Jordan just read? The Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, the very one who came down at infinite cost to Himself moving heaven and earth and passing through the heavens in the fullness of time to reveal God to us and save us, thereby bringing us into the very embrace of God, the very bosom of God, the very heart of God. So Jesus is the one saying this. He's saying, hey, only I know the Father. And then there's one other type of person, anyone that I choose to reveal him to. It might seem like he's being stingy or hard to get. Quite the contrary. Think about the one speaking it. Man, he, he gave everything to be the revelation of, of, of to bring anyone who will come to him into the Father's house, right? So that's the first thing you remember if you think, oh, he's being stingy and hard to get on, on and giving, you know, giving out the knowledge of God to people. No, but also, secondly, look at the verses that directly follow. So look at the context. Context is always king. Verses 28 through 30, we won't read the whole thing. It's that famous passage that um, Dane Ortland wrote a whole book on, Gentle and Lowly, is just wonderful. If you haven't read it, haven't please, read it. please read it. But right after, the next word... After Jordan stopped, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him, verse 28, come to me. Very next word, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. So there's an open invitation, and he just presents himself. It's the only time in the Bible he, he speaks about what his heart, he articulates, here's what my heart is like. 
And he says, I'm gentle, I'm lowly, I'm humble, come to me. It's a wide open invitation. There's a reason that Jesus' arms, you know, our picture of who God is is perfectly expressed in Christ. And, and Christ, the perfect picture of Jesus is his arms are literally pinned open wide. His choice. And he's saying, come, come to me, right? Come to me. So, and I, and I love that, you know, as soon as I do that, I'm looking at my, not meaning to, but I can see my reflection in the window and it just reminds me of that Sugarloaf Mountain and is it, is it Rio, Rio de Janeiro or Sao Paulo? The, the big statue, Rio, of Jesus um, with his arms open wide. But, uh, so his arms are open wide and yet no one comes to the Father except, uh, only the Son knows the Father and the one to whom the Son reveals him. So we have to... So you can boil it down. You have to come. The only way to know God is through the Son. The only way to know God the Father is through the Son. So He is our way to understand and to know personally. Not just understand, not to just have cognition, but to personally be in relationship with, to be re- and to be reconciled to the Father is through the Son. It has to happen through the Son. So anyone can come, but you can only come. Anyone can, and everyone can only come one way, right? It's the Christianity is the most inclusive. Like, no one's left out. No one at all. You, haven't, you can't do anything too bad to put yourself beyond the grace of God. And that's what Paul finishes the chapter with. And yet, no one can come except through one way. The most in- exclusive, through Jesus alone, through his torn flesh and shed blood. No, no other way. There's no other way. There aren't many ways up the mountain. So, it's this dialectic, I mean, that is the perfect dialectic, right? Um, that is the truth. So, before moving on... Um, Let's look at this little detail. It's a pronoun, right? Um, himself in verse 26. Let me turn back here. Himself. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes. Now, what am I going to say here? Why did I point that out? The Spirit himself intercedes for us. Why point that out before we move on? Because we tend to think of the Spirit as this impersonal force. Right. And we forget that... He's a person. Like he's in in Star Wars or something, right? Yeah, we just tend to forget he's a person. He's he's as personal as the Father. He's as personal as the Son. He is a he. Paul does not say itself, the Spirit itself. The Spirit is always referred to as a him, as he, as him, as himself, not itself. He is not a a voltage that you can plug into. The Spirit is a person. He has a personality. He has feelings. We talked about this last week, I think, that the Spirit is, is, compared, is referred to sometimes as, as if he were or like a dove. Doves are very, and Dad knows this from hunting in South Texas, grew up doing it together. Doves are very skittish. You know, you walk, I mean, we used to have dove out at Fawn Lake, and you walk out the side door, and they just, they, they'd be eating the seeds underneath the, and they, they're not like pigeons, like, you know, rats with wings, where they just, in, in New York, you try to kick them, and they're just, they will just come right back. And, uh, it, but no, dove are very... And so the Spirit is... He's a person, and he's deeply and instantly grieved by sin, as is the Son, as is the Father. And, and he has deep and profound feelings. He groans for us in prayer. So, yeah, just that simple point, but that profound point that Paul says himself for a reason. Every word in the, in the Scriptures matters and tells us things about who God is and, and what he's doing for us. Um, yeah, so... Fully, the Holy Spirit is fully God. He's fully personal. I, I, you know, sometimes, and I've, I've been as guilty of this as maybe anyone, but especially as a Reformed Presbyterian person, but like, I think a lot of times in, in very conservative Bible appreciating, Bible preaching, 
Christ, Christ-exalting um, churches and traditions, sometimes the Spirit can be forgotten about, left out, sideshowed, the forgotten person. Uh, I think Forgotten God is a, a book that Francis Chan wrote on the, on the Holy Spirit. I, I call him, sometimes he's, I call him the red-headed member of the step, the red-headed stepchild of the Trinity and, and meaning no reverence at all, but like he's fully God. And yet so often charismatics do a great job you know, uh, sometimes Presbyterians and, and uh, conservative Baptists and, and others do a less good job of, of, but at the same time, there's this, I've heard the Holy Spirit referred to as the shy member of the Trinity. I'm getting a bit off from the text, but just to say that, that one of the favorite things the Holy Spirit does is to spotlight Jesus Christ. So one of the ways you can know you're full, someone who's full of the Spirit is always going to be talking about Jesus. Always going to be talking about what God has done for us in Christ. The Holy Spirit is like a Jesus spotlight. Why? Part of it is because the, the Trinity is outward facing because the Trinity is a happy family. And so what sin does to us is it curves us into ourselves. But someone who's self-forgetful, the more you become like a Lord, the more you, you don't, it's not like C.S. Lewis said, it's not that you're, you're, you're not humble because you don't think much of yourself. You don't have a low self-esteem. You just don't think of yourself much. That's a mark of godliness. And that God, uh, he, you know, the Son is interested in the Spirit and the Father. And, and, in, and in creation, that's an, that's an overflow, not in the sense that the creation is part of God, but an overflow of the creativity and the love of God that the, that the Trinity actually has, the person Trinity have for one another. The Trinity, outward facing, that, that's what love is, is outward facing. It goes out. It's like the Spirit, the Son is loving the Father and Spirit and so on and so on with the other, all the members of the, of the, uh, of the Trinity. And so um, the Spirit loves to showcase Jesus Christ and, and what he's done for us and what God the Father has done for us in Jesus. Um, so sometimes he's referred to as the, he's referred to, right, as the shy member of the Trinity. Um, so just, you know, on record here again on tape is really constantly as a, as a Presbyterian um, just repenting of, of sometimes not giving the Holy Spirit due, due credence and, and credit in my, in my head and mind and heart. Um, and in my teaching, we, uh, without the Holy Spirit, we, we're dead in our sin. The Holy Spirit brings God himself and all of the salvation that Christ has effected, has, has wrought for us, has purchased for us, and gained and won for us to bear in our lives. The Spirit brings us to be seated with Christ in the heavenlies. The, the Spirit brings Christ down to us. The Spirit, without the Spirit, we're toast. The Spirit deserves all of our praise for being fully God and for... Um, being effective in our salvation. So, um, verse 28a, um, before I move on, just pause, brief pause. Any, any questions there? Any comments on, on that? Yeah, I, I think um, I, I was raised in a Pentecostal kind of influenced church and over time gravitated towards like Presbyterian Reformed Church. And I think, like, I've had in the past a, sub- a suspicion towards the Pentecostal wing of Christianity. Sure. Because of perceived, perhaps actual, like, excesses. Right. You know? and But I think there's, like, overcorrection. For that's sure. You're, you're uh, For referring sure. to, and there is a danger, I think, like, of... And I think in my own my own life, like I've been guilty of in some ways like quenching the spirit yeah, by, by over intellectualizing sure. it and not really heeding it. And right. 
Um, right. 16, I'm going to tire you, I know we're... we're no, no, it's now, fine, like, don't worry. But um, 15 and 16 are really mm. profound verses. Um, yeah. And a lot of Puritans I've been reading have like, spent a lot of time on that. Mm-hmm. Um, like the actual spirit bearing witness with our spirit that, that we, we are children of God. God. Yeah. And I mean, That's right. again, at risk of getting off on too much of a tangent, but yeah. like, would you say we know that all Christians have the spirit? That's clear. That's clear. That's right. But I'm not sure that all Christians have that assurance that's spoken of. I think that's right. In verse 16. Oh, and yeah. There's a, and there's, a, that's right. there's yeah. a deeper relationship with the Spirit. Um, and there are, uh, I think, like some very famous Christians or saints in the past have spoken of times when they really felt the Spirit of adoption and that bearing witness yeah. in their lives. And it wasn't a permanent thing. But it, it did it did occur. I can and, testify to that for sure. And um, it's a wonderful. It's thing. something that I've been thinking about a lot, like the last couple weeks, mm-hmm. studying these verses and, and really mm-hmm. um, without like it's weird. It's a little tricky, right? Because you don't want to just be chasing a feeling. Right. That's right. Um, because then you're kind of guilty of maybe what the excess the excessive wings do, but. It's, it's right to desire that, to have that assurance. And it's a deeper thing than just and a feeling, too. Yeah, it doesn't, exactly. it doesn't, yeah, it doesn't it's, avoid or obviate feelings, but it's not necessarily synonymous. You know, and yeah. I think a lot of what he's been taught, what Paul has um, uh, taught us in the, in the first part of the chapter, uh, walking according to the Spirit. I mean, I think, and you can tease out a lot of what that means, and we have. But like that seems to be the key towards um, that kind of deeper assurance mm-hmm. that that he speaks of in verse sixteen, mm-hmm. and uh, and so much of that. Go ahead, sorry. Yeah, no, that's and fine. so much just to tack on to those, those great comments that are helpful um, and thoughtful. That back to the perichoresis, back to the the mutual indwelling. That God's always in one person, doing what all, all the persons are always in concert, acting in concert, and because uh, He's one God. And and he's not a he's not in a society opposed to himself. He's consistent. He's he's loving, and he's perfect. And um, just just on the idea that you know we keep we walk. How do we? What's the one of the main ways that we do keep in step with the spirit? Is we like Mom was saying earlier, like we're all agreeing. We uh, we meditate on his word day and night. We which points which takes us to Christ, and it's Christ dwelling in you richly by by his spirit. So we walk with the spirit by. Knowing his word, meditating on his word, dwelling on his word, worshiping him through his word, leaning on his word, taking him at his word, living by his word. See how the word and the spirit and Jesus as the word came full of the spirit. You see, the word and the spirit are always acting in concert. You see it in a million different ways. You see it play out in a thousand different places. But the word and the spirit are always acting in concert because they are both the word and the spirit are God. Can I offer one, yeah. one last quote? On this? Uh, this is a very short, by Thomas Brooks. Yeah, yeah I love Thomas Brooks. Um, yeah. And you know, Spirit is the Comforter, right? He mm. provides assurance, and, and this, this is really great quote, I think. He says, Christians, the highway to comfort is to mind comfort less and duty more. And mm. it is to mind more what you should do mm. than what you have. Yeah, that's good. In other words, if you seek comfort, yeah. you 
are likely not, not to, get, to it. get it. That's right. But if you do what um, you should do, yeah. if, you, if, you, if you aim to do what God calls you to do, if you mm-hmm. keep his commandments, mm-hmm. then you're sure to get it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, C.S. Lewis says, says something similar in, di- in a slightly different way, and that he, he talks a lot in various places about, um, yeah, don't, yeah, don't let your feelings lead you. Don't go. Don't seek. Don't seek for the feelings, but obey. Obey. Do what you know to be right. What God's called you to in His Word, and the feelings will follow. And very early, you know, not always, but they will follow. They will follow obedience. But do what you know. Don't wait for the. Don't wait for the feeling to obey. Right. I mean, thank God Jesus didn't, or else in the in the garden he wouldn't have decided to to go through with the cross, and we'd all be, we'd yeah, all be damned. I just want to say I agree with with everything you said, but there have been times that I've you know, wanted to mm. forgive or wanted to, you know, not feel so rejected or, right. you know, um, crappy. But, um, but that, you know, I, I couldn't. And so I've learned that if I, when I go to sleep, if I just relent to the spirit mm. and say, you have your way with my heart while I'm sleeping, when, so I'm not struggling. Mm. And I wake up a different person. It's like he's done spiritual surgery on me. Why? Absolutely. And so I think there are times that we do just have to, you know, say, here, here is my will and my heart, yeah. and I'm just handing it to you. And I think that both of those things, like you said at the beginning of your comment, are true in that we don't want to let our feelings lead us, and yet that's not to say that the Spirit doesn't care about our feelings and the spirit doesn't sanctify our feelings and he doesn't nurture us in our feelings and align them with the Lord and because feelings are important but letting them they're a they're a they're a terrible taskmaster um, if you let them lead you but he cares about them he wants to sanctify them he wants to meet us in our sadness and our joy and our happy you know so um, and we shouldn't just ignore our feelings either right I mean um, so yeah that's God made us we want, Jesus. Yeah, he's Definitely a he's a feeling God, God, contrary to some what the early church fathers thought who were infected by affected by um, Platonism. <laughs> but uh, God is a he's not a dispassionate guy, he's a passionate he's a passionate God and uh, who wept and laughed and we have yeah, we have feelings because we're made in God's image and he's all his feelings are not affected by sin and he he wants to sanctify our feelings and that's part of what being sanctified and glorified means. Um it's good. Feelings are important. Um, okay, so verse twenty-eight A. Let's ponder this just for a moment. Let's let's revel. Let's just revel in. Let's even more than not more than pondering it. But let's ponder it and, and just marinate in it, soak in it. Uh, verse twenty-eight. Um, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Just that first part there. Just it's just just roll it around on your. In your mind and heart, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. That is a that is a truth that has been a bedrock and a ballast for many a saint. Um, just to have that confidence. I mean, can you imagine living without that confidence? I mean, the confidence of it's such a north star for me, knowing that like I I serve a God who's sovereign and who loves me fully, and who because of Christ is using everything. You know, he used the cross for my good, for my ultimate good, and he's using everything in my life. It's not wasted. It's not because he hates me, this pain and suffering I'm feeling. He's, these, these mistakes I've made, these horrible decisions, um, he's using it for good. Um, so 
anything else there, just reveling in this beautiful, this beautiful truth. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Yeah, it sure has. Um, wonderful, it's a wonderful truth. Now, what's the converse of this? What's the converse of this? Not something that you hear, at least I haven't heard it that asked much. But there is a converse to this truth, to this beautiful truth. Let me ask it this way. For whom does God work all things for good? His children. And what does the text say in particular? That's right, his children. For those who love God. For those who love God, right? So he doesn't, so the converse of that is, he doesn't say that he works all things for good for everyone. Certainly he doesn't for those who, who will endure his just and eternal wrath. For those that don't turn to him and the mercy and grace he offers in Christ. Not for them. It's for his children. And it's not because we deserve it more. It's because of what Christ has done for us. And that, that's on offer for, every, for everyone. But it's a, it's a truth to be held onto by not just anyone, but for those that are covered in Christ, that have come to God in Christ and been made his children. Um, and can I my um, study Bible says uh, I like this it says the good in this context does not refer to earthly comfort but conformity to Christ which is our ultimate mm-hmm. good is being conformed to Christ mm-hmm. and, and the difficulties he puts in our lives mm-hmm. are to make us to make us more like that's right you know? that's right yeah, so much of that good is going gonna, is gonna to be the painful stuff that God's using to, the stuff that he's turning, yeah, yeah, for our good and using to make us more like Jesus. It's typically not the easy stuff. That, and it's the stuff that we go, how could he use this for good? That's the stuff that he's using yes. for good. Um, so lest we get puffed up about the fact that God loves us, let's read the rest of the verse, 28b, right? Um, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So, for those who are called, okay, not, not, because, not for those who have done it all right, no, for those who are called. Why? Why are they called? Because of their deserts? Because they're better? No, according to his purpose. According to his purpose. Um, look at verse, well, you don't have to. Turn there, but if one chapter later, and we'll get into this chapter, God willing, in a couple weeks, maybe even next week, but nine, Romans 9, verse 11 and verse 16, whew, Paul says in Romans 9, 11, he says, though they were not yet born, he's talking, about, um, um, he's talking about Esau and Jacob, the twins, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob, I have loved, but Esau, I hate it. Again, not because of anything good or bad they've done. And then in verse 16, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So we can't say, oh, well, you know, God's using, he, he's called me because I'm great. And we're going to get into much more of that, obviously, in chapter 9. But it's not something to take pride in. It's not something to be proud over. Quite the contrary. Um, if you look also at Ephesians Chapter one, verses three through four. That's just this is a it's a landmark text um, that talks about according to the why is why does God choose us? He chooses in love according to the purpose of His will. But let me just read just a, just a smidge of that. Paul says 
in Ephesians 1, starting at verse 3, I won't read the whole thing. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ. So how are we blessed? Only in Christ. Who has blessed us in Christ. It's amazing how many times Paul uses that little, those two words, in Christ. With ev- There's no blessing outside of Christ. So he's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Not most of them, all of them. Even as he chose us, here it is, in him, there it is, in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. Okay, so you hadn't done anything good or bad yet. You weren't even born. That we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Why? According to the purpose of his will. To the praise of his glorious grace. And it's not because of what we've done and because we're good. It's because he's good. And quite the contrary. And and Paul goes on to say in Ephesians 2, we were dead in our sins and trespasses. So, and we'll get into more of that in nine. My, pur- my purpose isn't to dive, do a deep dive into that now, but simply to say that God's love owes to God's election, not to our behavior, work, or will. Now, this is a humbling doctrine. That's my point here, to press on this. It's a humbling doctrine. It's also a propulsive doctrine. What do I mean by, it's humbling. It's like, it's, you, I, don't, I can't take pride in this. It's, God hasn't chosen me because of anything. I'm better than anyone else that he hasn't chosen. Wow, what a humbling doctrine. Why, Lord, why have you chosen Maybe me? Maybe he knew you were going to be better than everybody else. Well, we're going to get to that with the Ordo Salutis, and that's not true. And I know you're joking. Yeah, yeah. Your, your father's turning over in his grave. Yeah, he knows you're kidding, too. Um, so it's a humbling doctrine, more obviously. Why is it a propulsive doctrine? Right? What do I mean by that? Anyone want to take a gander? What do I mean by and when, the, when you get this as a saint, that he hasn't chosen me, he doesn't choose anyone based on how good they are, the, any, any future goodness that he might see. Why does this propel us out when this sinks down as believers to share the gospel? Why, why, why would this be a propulsive truth? Because, be, because knowing that he's chosen you before the beginning of time makes you think, okay, he has purpose for me, so what is that purpose? I want to, I, I don't want to miss that. So I'm going to go, I'm going for it, the purpose. I'm that is true. That's a, that's a good way that it, that truth can be propulsive. That's true. What else? Anything else that you might think of that, it's kind of the opposite of, in my mind, of you hear about, oh, the, you know, the negative phrase, the frozen chosen, like Presbyterians sometimes, reform people can be thought of as, made fun of as the frozen chosen, like, oh, God's sovereign. He's the one who chooses in, in salvation. There's nothing we can do about it. So why should we even go share? Actually, I think this doctrine, when it's rightly biblically understood, as Paul's explaining it, um, as the Holy Spirit warms our hearts with it, it should actually do the opposite. It should unfreeze us. It should free us to go share. Why? Why, why am I saying that? Because um, you're free from the fallacy of that's not the right word but you're, you, you are not operating under the, illu- the delusion that you are in control right not, so it's not up to Jordan and how winsome he's or convincing yeah if you're talking about like evangelism right and specifically right which is, the, which is I've, I've had this people argue this to me a lot it's yeah. like why evangelize right if God's chosen everything but first of all because he tells us to yeah, that's, that's the best reason. Yeah. But then on a practical level, um, if you think that it's up to me... Right, then, that's a lot of pressure. And then if, if, right? and, if and when um, uh, the gospel is rejected by people, it'd be very easy to... Um, just shrivel up, to just shrivel up. right? Exactly. But 
Can I ask you a, a question? Of course, so, and we'll come back to this. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. There seems to be like a parallelism a bit in this verse because he uses the he uses the um, for those twice, right? For those who love God, and then for those who are called, right, according to His purpose mm-hmm. in eight twenty eight. And so we're talking about how um, right. And so. Um, the, to, I, I, I sense, maybe I'm reading it wrong, that, that um, only those who are called are those who love That's right. God. Yeah, why do you so, love? So because so you've even been called. Like, and again, this is like a, another counterpoint to the Arminian, which is that you can't love God in the first instance That's right. unless he predestines it. Yeah. Or ordains it. Yeah. Or how we want to put unless it. Unless he's... Yeah, unless you know. he's called you, irrevocably called you, right? effectually called Paul you. Because Paul has to said the love that comes the out natural, of the call. The carnal mind is enmity against That's God, right. and we are all born. It's not like he, that person. It's not like he sees future love and then calls you. No, quite the contrary. Right. He calls you based on nothing good you've done, and that love, love springs from mm-hmm. that enlivening word when God speaks to you life and draws you to himself. That's right. Yeah, I think that's absolutely but, right. From but there. I can understand like why. Um, people like it, it doesn't it's not really comprehensible to me like this gets at the intimacy of God's sovereignty and the responsibility that he holds human beings mm-hmm. right so the intimacy between sovereignty and free will and we can't I know that's not a phrase in the Bible but, or we're human but responsibility anyway. human responsibility we can't reconcile those can't two really things reconcil- like, but, I, the, I, but the scripture touts both of them we're responsible God's sovereign and like in you know, it's same philosophy, like, I struggle with that. Yeah, that's right. And I thought I was going to, like, get an answer. Fix it, yeah, cut the Gordian you know? knot. Cut yeah. the Gordian knot and, like... Yeah, no. Yeah. Well. Yeah, I, it's totally... I think it's put most distinctly in Luke twenty two twenty two when Jesus is talking about Judas, and he says, he says, it's been determined that the Son of Man should go, but woe to him, woe to him who is who's betrayed him. You know, so there's a curse. There's a, there's a cur- Judas was responsible for his actions. He's, he's cursed, and deservedly so, but, but it, was, it was determined. It should be so. So it's, yeah, it's this antinomy, like you said. And, and actually, the more you press into it, I think one thing I have understood, apprehended, not comprehended, is that, is that God's sovereignty actually allows for our responsibility. Without God's sovereignty, we, there, we, don't, have, we don't have responsibility. It's, if we're just a concatenation of atoms, then everything's, everything's determined fatalistically. But either way, um, all good thoughts. So, so, into, so to keep moving through this... Um, and great, great insight into verse 28, by the way. Um, propul- let me just talk about why I think it's propulsive in two ways, and I think Jordan touched on uh, one of those ways. So, and there, there, there are many other ways, I'm sure, but propulsive, this is a propulsive doctrine, the, the, the idea that God calls us and our love comes out of that call, and he calls us not because of anything good that we've done. Um, it's humbling, it's propulsive and it's humbling, right? Pride makes me keep good things to myself. Pride makes me selfish. Um, and it makes me keep other people out of m- me having what I want. Um, getting something good that I don't deserve makes me uh, want to invite others in to share. And it's such good news, right? Um, so I think it's propulsive in that sense, in, a, in that humbling, non-proud sense, because um, that's the way humility works. It invites others in. Pride keeps people out. But number two, the pre- like Jordan said, the pressure's off. The pressure's off me to convert people. Now the... Now the uh, the mandate from the Lord, from the good God, is on us. Romans 10, we'll get there. 
hey, it's our job, privilege, duty, and privilege and responsibility to, he, God could have, he didn't have to choose us to go, hey, go share, now go share the good news and proclaim it from the mountaintops to everyone you encounter. You're going to be my megaphone to, to the world about what I've done. Like he, he could have just gotten that to, to people in his own way without using us, but he's chosen for us to be the, the primary vehicle that, that shares the gospel. Um, but, so we're called to scatter the seed, but we're not the ones who cause the seed to sink down in the soil and make it grow. That's God. God's the one who draws people to himself. God's the one who saves. The scriptures are, I think, so clear about that. Paul's so clear about that here. And so that frees me up, like Jordan was saying. I can, I can sh- it frees me up to go out and share the gospel with impunity, as it were. Because a lot of people are going to reject it, but I don't have to take that personally. That's between them and the Lord. And um, I want to be as winsome as I can. I want to be, I want to scatter it broadcast. I don't just want to, I mean, a friend of mine talked about how, why don't we see more people coming to Christ? It's like, well, some of it could be that like my, 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 my seed scattering is more like a, a very careful planting. You know, I'm like every couple months I'm putting the seed down and they're not going to see a whole lot of growth. But if you're, we're told to kind of like do this, you know, like there's yeah. going to be a lot more growth, even if uh, you know, 10 out of every 11 reject. If you're scattering the seed broadcast, you're going to see a lot more growth. So, um, and, and I think you're much more likely to do that understanding like it's God that gives the growth. So we're freed up just to share. Um, anyway, and I think too, on that note, it, it, um, it helps you to see that no one's beyond God's ability to save. Because it, you know, it, it frees you up to go, man, God's salvation is greater than anyone's sin. He's the one who saves. As long as someone's breathing, they're not too far gone. They're not too far beyond uh, the ability of God to save. And so it's because salvation's of the Lord. So um, super liberating, propulsive doctrine, in my opinion. Um, verse 29. So we're entering into Ordo Salutis territory, the order of salvation. The order of salvation. For those whom he foreknew, this is the part that my granddad really loved. He loved 28, he loved 29, he loved 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So foreknew. This is not he knew that they'd choose him by looking into the future, but knowledge, it's, it's, it's not a cognition. It's a knowledge in an intimate relational way. Um, in choosing the elect, God was not choosing a lotto ball, but a son. Right? So full affection and deepest interest are involved in this word for new. It's not just knowing something's going to happen. It's a relation, a relational, deep, profound, personal knowing. Um, predestined. It makes me, so let me just read it again. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined. So he knew you, if you indeed are in him, before you were ever created, he knew you in a relational way. And he was going to be drawing you to himself. Um, predestined, it makes me chuckle when Christians who believe the Bible to be God's word say, I don't believe in predestination. And which happens all the time. Uh, and, I, and I respond oftentimes, um, then you don't believe the Bible, just to kind of get them, because I know they do. Not all Christians do, sadly, but oftentimes these are people that do believe the Bible is God's word. And then um, I say to them, well, of course you do believe the Bible, in which case you do believe in predestination because it's all over the scriptures. And here's one instance. Paul says clearly we are predestined. What, they're, what we're quibbling over is not whether or not we believe in predestination, if you believe the Bible is God's word, because it's in here all over the place. But we're quibbling about what does the word mean? 
What does the word mean? And really simply, the Greek word means predetermined. It means predestined. It means predetermined or decide on beforehand. Now, this really got me today. And again, it's a humbling doctrine, right? It's not based on any goodness in you. It's not, that's not it at all. Again, Ephesians 2, Paul says we were dead in our sins. It's humbling. Why did you choose me, Lord? It's certainly not because of anything I've done. That's a humbling doctrine. That is a humbling doctrine. This really got me today as I was reading over this text, though. Predestined for what? What are we predestined for? What are we predestined for? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Keep reading. Yeah, keep reading. To be conformed yeah. to the image of his son. To be conformed to the image of his son. Um, you know, that is, that's what C.S. Lewis calls the intolerable compliment. Like, there's nothing, there's no greater way that God could, there's no, nothing greater God could do for us than to make us look like his son Jesus. And yet, like we were talking about earlier, a lot of the way that we get there is through, I mean, it's an invitation to major pain. Yeah, to major pain. Um, I mean, even Jesus learned uh, through the things he suffered, right? And we're, we are uh, sinful. And so, we're invited into this uh, through the drawing of God, through his foreknowing us and predestining us and loving us before the foundation of the earth to be conformed to the image of, Je- of Jesus Christ, God's only son. Um, like I said, Lewis calls this the intolerable compliment. Um, so he, and he, and I'll read the quote here. He talks in the problem of pain about how, you know, like in Ephesians 2.10, Paul calls us God's masterpiece. He says, hey, we're, we're not saved through our works. We're saved through the work of God, and we're saved completely through grace, which is his favor, not because of anything we've done, because of what he's done, we receive it by faith, right? It's not, and he goes, and he says, in case you didn't get that, he goes, it's not by works so that no one can boast. And then he goes on to say, but we're created for good works. We're not saved because of our good works. We're saved for good works, to walk in them. Good works that God's prepared beforehand that we might walk in them. And then he says, we're God's workmanship, we're his, his poema, we're his master, word means his masterpiece, right? This thing that he's making, that's, and his masterpiece is to, to bear his image, to look like his son Jesus, to be the, to see, he can be the firstborn among many brethren, right? And so, um, and so Paul mentions that here, and C.S. Lewis talks about that, and he says, look, we're not a, he gives these, nobody's better than Lewis at, at illustrations, he says, we're not a pencil sketch. Man, when you're going through suffering, and God's superintending it to bring good out of it for you, because you're guaranteed that's what he's doing, and he's making you like a son Jesus, you, you, you wish, you wish you weren't taking the, you know, the paint knife to you and scraping stuff away. You wish you were not a masterpiece. You wish you weren't taking the chisel and the hammer to you. You wish you were, it was, you were just a pencil sketch, and he was just lightly rubbing you out with a, with a rubber eraser, because that's, right? But no, he says we're not a pencil sketch. We're a masterpiece. Listen to this. He says, we are not metaphorically, but in very truth, a divine work of art, something that God is making and therefore something with which he will not be satisfied until it has a certain character. Here again, we come up against what I've called the intolerable compliment. Over a sketch made idly to amuse a child, an artist may not take much trouble. He may be content to let it go, even though it is not exactly as he meant it to be. But over the great picture of his life, the work which he loves, though in a different fashion, as intensely as a man loves a woman, or a mother or child, he will take endless trouble and, doubt, and would doubtless thereby give endless trouble to the picture if it were sentient or feeling, right? Uh, and had senses, was aware. One can imagine a sentient picture after being rubbed and scraped and recommenced for the 10th time, wishing that it were only a thumbnail sketch. 
whose making was over in a minute. Have you ever been there? I have. In the same way, it is natural for us to wish that God had designed us for less, a less glorious and less arduous destiny. But then we are wishing not for more love, but for less. So who do I take the most trouble with? My friends, my, my friends' kids, my neighbor's kids. Sorry, my neighbor's kids across the street or next door. Those little rugrats. Or my kids. My kids, of course. I take way more, I'm way harder on my kids than I am on the kids next door. Because I love my kids more. Because I love my kids more. I prefer my kids. I'm way more invested in my kids. Way more invested. So I'm harder on them. And God is making us into the image of his son. And he's using everything in our lives for good, for that purpose. So um, your becoming like Jesus is not a small renovation. It's not, I, C.S. Lewis says this somewhere else, but he's, it's not like adding uh, some gutters and knocking out a wall and maybe, maybe even adding an extra wing. It's like taking the house down to the studs and rebuilding a completely new structure. Hey, you must be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven, right? Like the first time wasn't good enough is another way of saying that. Sam, Sam Albury says that. The first time wasn't good enough. Think about how loving, think about how deeply offensive that is though. Hey, the first time wasn't good enough. If you said that, he says, um, if, you, if you were, everybody looks in a baby crib and goes, oh, the baby's so beautiful. If you're like, it's not good enough. That thing's going to have to be born a second time. Like that's, it's deeply offensive, right? Yeah, well, is the pot going <laughs> to, what's the pot going to say to its maker, right? Right. Now we'll get into that in a couple weeks. Because clearly we're not going to, even though I only have one page left. Oh, well, we may. We may. We may make it. We'll see. We may make it through uh, the end of the chapter, but we're not in a rush. Um, okay. You're right. So to be conformed to the image of his son. Why? Why? Keep going in the verse. Why does Paul say we are being conformed to the image? In order that Christ might be the firstborn among many brothers. Okay. So in order that Christ might be the firstborn among many brothers. So Jesus was not willing to go on enjoying his father in paradise without you, without us. That's what that means, among other things. Tim Keller on Hebrews 12.2, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, talking about Jesus, he says the only thing that Jesus didn't have as the son of heaven, as the son of the father, fully God, was you. When he went to the cross. It was me. It was us. He went to rescue us, to redeem us from hell by stepping in our place and taking it for us. The only thing he didn't have was us. And I might add, to sort of go back to that chapter, that passage we looked at last week, I might add the entire creation restored, right? Jesus, through his life, death, and, resur- and resurrection, didn't just bring about our restoration, but the restoration of all things. Um, if he hadn't, then Satan would have not been defeated. Yeah, had a rule, had a rule over, a lasting rule over creation, and he—he's a defeated worm, thrashing that, about because he knows his time is limited. Anything is that he was willing to die. Yeah. For me. Right. For me. Right. I mean, why? That'll make you live. So that'll make you live clean. No. Yeah, no, it's not. It's the farthest thing from. Do this, do that, do this, because I said so. And it's a, it's a love is the motive force. Look what he did for me. Like, he's to be trusted. He's to be loved. Even in the darkness when I can't see why, look what he did for me. Look how much he loves me. That, there's nothing stronger in the universe than love. And we, uh, he's saying, go preach the word, but don't worry. I'll take care of you. I'll be 
Right. Exactly. I'll take care of the results. That's something that was very freeing to me. So freeing. You know, like, I'm going to say whatever they react, whatever rejection I get. I don't live in this truth enough, which is why I don't share, one of the main reasons I don't share the gospel as much, because I think, oh, it's up to me. And that's, that's not, that doesn't line up with God's truth. So I'm choosing to believe something else, which is the source of most of our problems. Yeah, it's a great, great reminder. So, to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. I mean, the fact that he is going to that he calls us, because of what he's done for us, he calls those who come to him brothers. Wow. I mean, we're on equal standing with him. Well, we, we're in him. We have an, his inheritance. I mean, it's mind-blowing and heart-blowing. Um, somebody read John 20, verse 17 for me. John 20, Gospel of John, chapter 20, verse 17. Jesus has just risen from the dead. Resurrection Day, Sunday. John 20, 17. Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, and my God and your God. Did you hear that? So Dad's translation says, Brethren, go to my brethren, go to my brothers. He's talking, he's talking to Mary about the disciples, his closest crack team that's been with him for three years, that he's given everything to, that just either abandoned him or sat there, stood there watching him crucified or, or denied him. And he's calling them brothers. The first thing he says when he rises is, they're my brothers. They're on equal standing with me because of what I've done for them. And my father is their father. And, and he's our just God. All just totally abandoned. It's because we, what Christ has done for us is he has put us, he's put us in him. We stand in him. He's our identity. We're encased in Christ. That's it. But he already knew they were going to happen. Of course. And that was part of the plan, right? Oh, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I would have been running like a little wuss. Um, a coward. So he, yeah, he died alone for all of us. Um, so he says, go tell my brothers right after he rises from the dead. Yeah, true dad. It is true. They, yeah, they, they shame the men, that's for sure. And the men are the one that writing it, so you know it's true. Many markers of the truth, and that's one of them. They, they show themselves to be the opposite of smelling like a rose. They look terrible. So by the way, so this is just amazing, but in addition, why, does, why brothers? Why the firstborn among many brothers? Why not brothers and sisters? Misogynist. Isn't it because Adelphoi in Greek is. is um, so let me look at the Greek brothers here. And sisters, like the way we. Adelphoi is brothers, yeah. Use he to like, I mean, I know people don't do it anymore, but they used to use he generically for he or she. Right, right. Yeah, so it's Adelphoi here and not brothers, but yeah, I think brothers and sisters. I know Adelphoi can mean, yeah, brother or sister. Um, yeah, I think that's true. And I think, too, there's probably some. Um, there's something culturally in the fact that, you know, first of all, Jesus is, he is the son. So in him, we have, we stand in Christ. We stand with his inheritance, on, with his standing as, uh, as brothers. And not, not that we're going to be androgynous in heaven, we're not. But, um, 
but also the, something culturally with the ancient Near Eastern idea of the firstborn son. The firstborn son who gets the lion's share of the inheritance. Right. And, and our inheritance is in the firstborn son, Jesus Christ. And there is, the father has but one son, his name is Jesus, and we have our inheritance in him as we are united to him by faith. And so I think there's something of that. It's, it's the farthest thing from misogyny. It's quite the opposite. He's giving men and women, boys and girls, the full rights of the firstborn son of God. Jesus is sharing his inheritance with all who call on his name. That's the opposite of woman-hating, right? It's the exact opposite. It's equal footing for everyone in Christ. Um, it, so Paul says, whom he predestined, he called. Um, and and, and the, the word here is, it's clear that uh, because whom he calls, he also justifies. If you've been called, Paul says, you will be justified. In fact, it's not even, he doesn't use future tense. He uses, what tense does he use in, in all these? Past. Past. Aorist. Yeah, aorist, past. It's finished. He called, he justified. So it doesn't mean it's an irrevocable call. Not in the sense Jesus uses in the Gospels of many are called, few are chosen, but in the sense, in the sense chosen. He's using the, the, the term called here in the fact that you are, you are cho- if you are chosen, you are just, you have been justified. You have been declared right before God because of what God has done. Um, do you see how these are linked? You cannot be called and not justified. And so it goes all the way back up the chain of the order of salutis to foreknew at the start of verse 29. If he has always known you, you will be saved and conform to the image of his dear son, Jesus. Has he known you? You will be saved. You will be sanctified. You will be glorified. Notice that even... Famously, even glorified, which means finished. When we see him face to face, we will become like him, unable to sin, non posse picare, not able to sin. Even glorified is in the past tense. He will do it. It's so sure that it's like he already has done it, right? It's going to happen. If you have the spirit in you, all these things are yours. That, again, is a free, it's a very freeing thing. Now, let's, um, let's stop here. I've got... I really only have another page of notes, but let's just, we have 10 minutes left rather than, let me ask you all this. So I've got, I could probably finish. We have 10 minutes. Does anybody have any burning? Let's just have a little pause. I think we can finish and still finish right on time at nine, but might as well so that we can move, move through into chapter nine next week. But, but, but. Let me just ask. Let's just pause here. We'll just let the Lord in his sovereignty kind of um, do what he wants here. But it, um, any questions, any comments, please, anything. And then if we make it through the rest, great. If not, we can soak in that next week. It's not, I'm not in a rush. I was planning on having next week to finish chapter 8 anyway. Having a former Catholic uh, spirit to us were more like being taught as a ghost. In the what? Wait, what? In the former Catholic. Yeah, right. Know, it was more like a ghost. The Holy, a Holy Spirit, the Holy yeah, Ghost, yeah. Not so much as a, it was like more freaky for kids. I mean, and definitely, I mean, how we talked about him, a person, that really wasn't conveyed yeah, so much. Yeah, it's, not it's really important. Convey, not that convey. Yeah. More like it's living in you and you have that. And seeming like impersonal. Very much so. And yet, do you know that actually the idea of personhood 
uh, wasn't in existence in the ancient world, and it came about as as the church, early church fathers wrestled with what the Trinity, what God is in the Trinity, as revealed through Jesus Christ, His Son. For theologians, because of the revelation of Jesus Christ in conjunction with the Scriptures, as He fulfilled the Scriptures, began to wrestle. With, okay, God is one, and, and Jesus is God; He's worthy of our worship, and yet He's not the Father; He's the Son, and there's the Spirit. And they began to understand that God is multi-personal. Isn't per- and isn't person the, comes out of the, the, the idea of the Trinity. Originally was used to describe the masks that, that Greek actors wore. Like, I think, I think that's related to the... I think I've heard... Uh, yeah, I couldn't... Like persona. Persona. And I mean, it's kind of a... You know, in the same way that it's the same substance. I mean, I know it's one nature, three persons. Right. But in the same way, you have a different mask, but they're still the same being. Yes, and that would be, if you took that too far, analogies always break down, it would be modalism, right? It's like, yeah, God is sometimes the Spirit, sometimes the Father, sometimes the Son. That's, of course, a heresy. But yeah, I I think I've heard some of that before. I'll have to dig into that some, but yeah. um, So God God isn't just one one being who, he is one being, but he isn't just one being who takes on different persona, right, at various times, meaning... Sometimes he's the father, sometimes he's the son, sometimes he's the spirit. That's, that's a heresy called modalism, and that's not, that's not what yeah. the Bible... You know, God is always tripersonal. He's always interacting within himself as he's multipersonal, and he's one, yet he's one God, he's one substance. When you say that personhood was not extant in the ancient world, do you mean... Um, well, are you, are you alluding to also the concept of like human beings being made in the Imago Dei and like having having a, a you know sort of an intrinsic val- uh, value if you will or... I'm not tapping into that as much because I think that's more to do with the yeah the, the intrinsic worth of the human uh-huh. but more personhood which came you know the Trinity the idea that the, un- the, the clear understanding of, of God is multi of tripersonal be yet one God yeah. it really came about because of the Incarnation and was worked out in the first three three centuries or so of the church, which way postdated obviously Imago Dei, which had been around since right. that understanding had been around since Genesis, since Moses wrote Genesis. So you're saying even the Jews didn't have that. Yeah, it really the idea of the, the idea of personhood really didn't gain currency in any culture that we're aware of until the early centuries of the church, because of, we trace it back to the incarnation and what the what Jesus showed us about God's tripersonal nature. So are you talking about person, personhood, like human beings having personhood, or God yeah, being? Yeah, that's right, human beings. So us as persons, like individual persons with a personality. That we're so used to that. It's like, of course, everybody's always in that. No, that like that. Humans were not spoken about in that way until how were they until the incarnation? Yeah, because I mean, like I think of Socrates, and he seems like a person to me. No, for, he does to us in retrospect. We go, yeah, that's a person. Oh, okay. Yeah, but but it wasn't the idea of like you don't find the kind of language of personhood if we talk about all the time today before the incarnation before the early church because and it, and it, and because of because the Jesus Christ in his incarnation showed us that God is father son and spirit uh-huh. as the as the early church fathers wrestled with the truth of the incarnation shining a light on the truth of the written scriptures old old covenant new covenant they began to understand personhood and as we understood personhood like Calvin says in the in the first book of his institutes as we understand God we understand ourselves and as we understand ourselves we begin to understand God you you can't understand one without the other 
And so um, as we wrestle with personhood in God as revealed through the scriptures, through primarily through his son, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, we begin to understand human personhood. Yes, in connection with the Mago Day. Isn't that interesting? It, it, it takes a while to get your head around it. It's like because we're so familiar with personhood, but it's because of the incarnation. It wasn't in, it wasn't in the lingua franca of any culture. I'll dig into that a little bit more. There's a guy that writes on this and other things too. What's the, uh, the, in, the, the invention of the individual? Um, it's an academic work by, a, he's an Oxford or Cambridge scholar. Um, I'll, I'll try to bring the book next week. It's, um, I'm only a quarter of the way through it, but it's fast, absolutely fascinating. Yeah. So much of the... It's Seedentop. His last name is Seedentop. S-I-D-E-N-T-O-P. And yeah, it's an academic penguin. It's published by Penguin Books. And it's it's a wonderful work of uh, of great scholarship and um erudition but it's so much today, it draws on this little like bit. we live off our like society secular culture especially in the west is living off the last bits of the capital of right that's right what christianity uh, originally taught right and like we have all these concepts like dignity mm-hmm. or human rights. Which vanishes once you get which, rid of the idea like, of Imago Dei. Exactly. And yeah. like that's why we're living on borrowed that's capital. Why, like, Judeo-Christian you, capital. It's interesting you said, and I never thought of this to mention how your dissertation was on how Paul in 16 or 18 through 25 right. is kind of answering the uh, preacher in right. Ecclesiastes in that like that is like if you look at the word objectively, you have to say that it is futile, you know. And I think like a Christian, like if you're if you're with someone who's not a believer and they look at nature and and um, marvel at the beauty, yeah. I think a Christian who understands what Paul's saying, especially in those verses has to say yes, but like, you know, death and decay is all I see. Right. Like, we actually know that as beautiful as yeah. the sunset is, it's actually a really, it's just a mere shadow of what it once was. And it's winding and down, it, and, and there's it, a reason it, for that. And it's, and, it's, and it's winding down. And it's eventually going to burn it all, burn everything up when exactly. it becomes a red this giant. is destined for destruction. And, it's, and the Bible has very clear... And satisfying answers for both of those truths, right? The beauty of all things, the teleology, the reason that they're made, where they're headed, why they're beautiful, why, why there is meaning, and the decay. Why we look around and how can all these things end in death? That feels so wrong. Because it is so wrong, and here's why it's happened. You know, it has the, even in the first three chapters, the Bible answers those with salient answers, these things. Because if we don't have the hope, right? Um, creation was subjected because of him who's... Yeah. Creation was subjected to futility, not willing, but because of him who subjected it. In hope. In hope. In hope. Right? If we don't have the in hope, yeah. then we... Oh, we're toast. Then, then really, like, you have to take the route of, like, the Let Buddhist, us eat, drink tomorrow, for, for, or eat, or drink, or for the, tomorrow we die. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Which is essentially what like I think, as a thought experiment, what the author of Ecclesiastes, that's my take. Some people say, oh, he's saying, enjoy life. No, no, he's saying, we're toast. If there's nothing from outside of creation to come in to reverse the curse in the created order and, to, and essentially to take that curse upon itself and to reverse it, then 
if things just carry on as they are, then let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. There's really no meaning. There's no point. Can I have one other thing on this? So in The Chosen that we saw, yeah. there's, there's a scene, and this is the way off topic, I'm sorry. No, I, but, dude, um, we're, we're finished. It's great. You know, we'll, we'll do, we'll do the, we'll finish out chapter eight last, next the, week. This guy, this, this um, priest or Pharisee, he gets elevated to the, um, the Sanhedrin. And it shows him like in his, in his bed chamber or whatever, in the morning, like when he's about to get commissioned or whatever you call it. Um, as a Sanhedrin, and he's like preparing, and he's reciting from Ecclesiastes. Mm. But like, it's clear from the character's development that he's being convicted, um, mm. in a way, because he's like had contact with Jesus, mm. and, you know, and um, he's not like what well, we saw. I don't think he has like made the leap, but I kind of suspect he will. But it's interesting that like he's going through that, and then he's like made the uh, part of Sanhedrin. And then at one point, he just, like, bursts out. He's like, you know, what is all this? You know, why are we doing all this? Hmm. What's the... And why do we think we're this... One why do we think we're so great? Huh. You know? Is it, this isn't Nicodemus. It's somebody else. No. This, no, is, a, yeah. this huh. is a fictional character from cool. the chosen. Cool. But anyway. Making I just me think, want to watch I just it. think it's interesting because, like... I'm still stuck in the early early season, early season two. <laughs> but I, 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 I do think, like, it's interesting how... how um, they use that, but also the, the fact that, um, well, without the work of God, right, without the calling of God and the work of him on our hearts, though, like, you can, you go the route of, like, as I said, like, the pessimist, right. the pessimist, the Buddhist, or the yeah. person who's like, let's eat, drink, and marry, be yeah. married for a while we die. Right. And Either whistle past the graveyard or despair. Or despair. Or, and we do neither. Yeah, those are kind of your two options if you're a thinking so person. A, a and we do, we do neither as Christians, that's right, because we have this hope. A Buddhist and she's all about hope and oh, that's totally inconsistent. Completely inconsistent. Yeah, I mean, I don't that's, a Western, that's a Western cosmetic sort of hodgepodge. Because it's like the most pessimistic. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's, everything's a veil of tears in Buddhism. It's all an illusion. She doesn't even know right. about Buddhism. Right. You should ask her, you should press, does Buddhism provide that this hope, this hope that you have, does it provide for that? But let me tell you what does. She won't even know. You won't even. She's a, la 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 la. Let's keep praying. May I read you something that was really disturbing today? From a Dutch prime minister and wife die hand in hand in legal duo euthanasia. Euthanasia. Both of them were 93. Mercy killing of the old, of the elderly and the infirm. Yeah. Yeah, as we turn from God in the West, we're living off of the borrowed capital of the Judeo-Christian. And if you've not read Dominion by Tom Holland, he's not a believer, but an ancient civilization historian, Persians, Greeks, Romans, and he he's British, and he began to realize in his research that he had less and less... T- he identified less and less with these great civilizations that he was studying, the Persians, the Romans, the Greeks. And he was actually, the more he, he realized, I'm Judeo-Christian, not in my beliefs, but as a Brit, I believe in human rights, I believe in dignity, and all these things come from the scriptures and from the Judeo-Christian worldview. And yet, I deny the, the God of the, of the Christians, but I've, but I've inherited these things and I believe these things, and only the Bible gives me the, the reasons for them in the foundation. Because the, the, the Persians and the Greeks and the Romans were brutal, absolutely brutal. And so he's, he's actually slowly, and the book Dominion is him talking about that, how the Bible made the West. Also, Vishal Mangalwadi, 
Uh, and Indian writes really beautifully. The book that made your world. Wonderful book. So on that. The book that made your world. The book that made your world. It's wonderful. You'll, you'll crush it. It's so good. Um, the uh, oh, Dominion by Tom Holland. They're both thick and really, really lovely. Um, he has good YouTube video talks too. Yeah. He's in process. Pray for him. And the and the last thing I'll say is we talked about this last week, but the a great book on the passage that we looked at last week that George has been talking about Romans. 8, 18 through 25 about, about the demise of creation and about how, yes, it's beautiful, but it's winding down and it's, it's brutal. It's red, it's red tooth and claw. What's going on? What's wrong? Annie Dillard, Pulitzer Prize winning book, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek. Uh, wonderful book. Really, really great writer and thinker. I think she is. Yeah, I think she I've is. I've heard of that book so many times. It's really, really worth reading. It's, I've never read anything like it. High school. I've never read it. Okay. It made it into my dissertation. I had, I had a few quotes at the top of chapters from, from her book. Annie, Annie Dillard, D-I-L-L-A-R-D, and uh, The Pilgrim at Tinker Creek, 1974 Pulitzer Prize winner. Um, let me go ahead and pray as y'all are writing things down, and, and then I'll, uh, we'll be done uh, three, four minutes past two time. Uh, we'll, we'll, hit the, we'll finish Chapter 8, Guy Willing, next week. Dio, hey, Dio Valente. Mm-hmm. Um, Jordan, can I suggest that he pray for your trip to Poland? Yeah, I'll be here next week too. Oh, you will. But sure. I mean, we'll pray. That's awesome. Okay, good. Good. Well, let's let's we'll pray this week and next. Well, Lord, we um, thank you for this word. Uh, What a blessing it is! How life giving. I was tired coming in with all sorts of cares, and now just having meditated on your word with my dear brothers and sisters for in, in you, Jesus, for an hour and a half. I truly am buoyed and I'm just so, so hope filled. And we thank you for your word, which is life. We thank you, Jesus, for rescuing us. And we do pray that we would, um, the burden of, of, of thinking that it's up to us, how people, whether people are saved or not, would it would just be lifted off our shoulders knowing that you've, you've chosen, you choose uh, to save based on nothing that people do, but based on your own goodwill and your great love. And it's a mystery, but it's wonderful. It's a mystery in Christ. And uh, Jesus, we thank you for coming down here and risking, not risking, but giving everything to save us. And so we know that um, you are a God full of love and full of power, able to save even the worst of sinners like us. And so we, we bless you. We thank you for these great and precious promises. Uh, Holy Spirit, come fill us. We do pray for Jordan that you would, um, in over a week as he goes to Poland, that you would bless his trip in every way, keep him safe. And I pray that it would be a productive trip. I'm guessing it's for work, but... You know, and I just pray that, yeah, every all he would recognize divine appointments, Lord, and he would get to share the gospel and be light and salt and, and do good work while he's there and have a great time. And I, um, and I pray for my trip too, Lord, tomorrow to, to Florida as, as I go to teach a little seminar that I'd have a good time with my friend and that people would, uh, we'd be in, we're going to be in Judges, which is a, indeed a dark book, but it's your word and there's so much profit. And so I pray that, that Jesus, you'd be exalted and that many people would be encouraged in your word and rooted and grounded in it, and even saved and sanctified. So we, we ask for that in Jesus' name. And yeah, bless everyone here. Amen. Whew, yeah.